0: We're going to continue in our series on the Confession of Faith, and uh, we're on Chapter 16. So you'll see on the handout it says Chapter 16, and the topic is uh, good works. And as we get into the topic, I'm reminded of the passage in Isaiah 5:20, uh, which says this: "It says, Woe to those who call evil good, and good evil; who put darkness for light, and light for darkness; who put bitter for sweet, and sweet for bitter." Now, the reason why this passage stands out to me, especially in today's day, uh, is that we're living in a time, we're living in in a period where people are not only following their own fleshly desires and living contrary to what is good, but we live in a time where people are calling what is evil good and what is good evil. Uh, and you wonder how it is that everyone is on that same page collectively, and they're, they're moving away from anything that resembles a Christian view of ethics or a Christian view of morals. And yet, it's not so much a conspiracy as much as it is uh, this natural opposition—a uh, natural opposition against the God of Christianity. And so, from this, we 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 uh, we can see how this question of good works is 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 challenging. Uh, And each generation that comes, they have their revisions of what they consider to be good or what they consider to be evil. What was socially unacceptable in the past may now not be socially acceptable, or excuse me, may be socially acceptable now. So what was considered horrible back then, today people are just accepting. And in man's pursuit of happiness, they'll continue to push that envelope because to hold someone back from progressing in that sort of direction is, is to hold to old school views, right? People want, people want to be progressive. Um, and the problem is that they don't know to what end they're trying to progress to. And even those who prefer to be conservative do not know what they're conserving. And, and that, that's the problem, that what's defining good and evil, what's, what's defining progress um, at least in the secular world that we live in, it is not the Bible, unfortunately. Now, how does this relate to Christian theology? Well, the Bible gives us a definition of good work. And the good thing is that it tells us that something isn't just good because we want it to be good. It tells us that what makes something good is not dependent on the latest social issue, nor is something good because we feel it deep inside, Right? Something is good only as it relates to the nature and character of God. Goodness, in and of itself, is dependent upon the God who is a trinity. That which is good is 100% dependent, specifically on the Christian God. And this is why the system of morality in other religions do not work, because the attributes of the Christian God and the Christian God alone can only do justice to what the ultimate standard of goodness is. And I don't say that as an American. I say that universally, right, the standard of goodness universally, no matter what country you come from or what culture you come from. So we're, we're going we're gonna to develop that a little bit more as we, as we go through uh, this chapter. Uh, the first paragraph, if you look in your handout, it immediately jumps right into what I've been talking about. Let's read uh, paragraph one. Can I get someone to read it out loud?
1: that do not have this warrant are invented by people out of blind zeal or on a pretense of good intentions and are
0: not truly good. Yeah, so the first thing we notice in this paragraph is a statement on basically what constitutes good deeds. The confession states good works are only those works that God has commanded in his holy word. And so the standard or rule for good works is the word of God. And that is anywhere you go that's not a Western thing that's not an American thing that's everywhere and this connects well with the very first chapter of the confession uh, if you if you have a confession if you look at chapter one it's on it's on the Holy Scriptures and in that chapter it tells us that the Holy Scripture is the only sufficient certain and infallible rule of all saving knowledge faith and obedience and, and this is not only a confessional thing. The Bible speaks this way. and I'll show you. Uh, Psalm 147, 19, it says, He declares His word to Jacob, His statutes and His rules to Israel. Also Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. And so here we see that God is the one who sets the standard, not only to his people, right? He's not the the one that sets the moral standards for Christians. He sets the moral standards for everybody, whether you're a believer or not. Uh, And we see that in Micah 6 where he says, he has told you, O man, right? His standards are for all men everywhere. And when uh, when the Westminster Confession was formulated, right, that's... That's like the mother confession. We, 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 we have a lot of parallel there with that confession. And when, when the Westminster Divines came together to formulate their, their confession, there was a lot of concern during that time to refute what, what, what's called antinomianism. Antinomianism is a false belief that now that you're in Christ, there's no need for uh, holy living. There's no need to look back at God's Moral law to see how you're doing and to see how you can align yourself with the law of God and they, they, would, they, they, they would they would see themselves as saved by grace and they felt no need to follow uh, god's moral law and you know what even though this was this may have been a problem during that time while they were making this confession it's a problem today in, in some churches today uh, and these views are denied right right? right off the bat in the first paragraph that good works are only defined by what's written in scripture. Now, many commentators agree that this chapter in this confession is, is unusually long. You would look at uh, uh, a chapter based on... Thanks, bro. Uh, you would look at a chapter on good works and you would think that was... It was obvious. Some of these things are obvious. But most commentators who, who have made commentaries on the confessions they've noticed how unusually long this chapter is. And it's because, you know, it's assumed that there there must have been some sort of problem with people understanding good works in the life of a Christian. Anyway, the paragraph continues on by saying that works do not have this warrant, right? The warrant in scripture. Works that don't have this warrant are invented by people out of blind zeal or on a pretense of good intentions and are not truly good. In other words, good works consist only of what God has said in his commands, not in what man devices or makes up out of blind zeal or so-called good intentions. Now, in Scripture, we've seen how the Pharisees, right? The Pharisees were zealous people for God. They may have had good intentions, um, however, the problem was that they sought to bring about obedience by creating layers of extra laws around God's law, which added to God's command. But again, even well-intentioned works that in fact were not commanded by God were not really good works. And that's something that we have to be careful of. You, you, you want to, in attempt to protect God's law, you, you end up adding more and more layers to it just so that you don't violate God's law, and you, you, you create additional laws that are not commanded by God. And Jesus, Jesus had very strong words for these Pharisees, who, who put a heavy burden on regulation around people's necks, a burden not even the Pharisees themselves were willing to, to take on. Uh, you see this in Matthew 23, 1 through 4. Can someone read that passage? Jesus said to
1: the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, But not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice, and tie up heavy burdens hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger.
0: Thank you. And because they added their own traditions, as if they were the very commands of God, Jesus rebukes them. You see this here in Matthew fifteen, seven through 9. Can someone read that? Thank you. you see that teaching as doctrines, the commandments of men, these are things that men add to, to the law of God as if the law of God is not sufficient. And again, in recent history, uh, church history specifically, there have been denominations, uh, particularly those of the holiness movement, that have done the same thing by requiring their church members not to go to the movies, not to dance. Not to drink alcohol, etc, and in their zeal for holiness, they devised rules to avoid worldliness, but the problem is that they themselves became the determination of what was God's law and requirement. And, and they also determined what was worldly and not trust that what the scripture says about what is worldly, what is wrong, what is sinful is sufficient. As if God had not already clearly spoken on the subject, and God had made it plain what sin is by His commands, and only God has the authority to issue such commands. Man has no authority to add a single requirement beyond God's command, and this is something that we have to be careful with. Uh, I saw a hand. You
1: okay, know, when um, in the intertestamental period, the Pharisees by the time Jesus steps on the scene they've added so much works to God's doctrine to the point of the apostasy mm-hmm. today we're at least the exact same thing yeah. the Catholics today are the Pharisees of the
0: Holy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. let's look at paragraph two can someone read paragraph two The first sentence in this, in this paragraph carries out the logical result of what was said in the first paragraph, right? Since good works are only based on God's word, then a life in obedience to God's word is, is fruit of salvation, right? Notice from the first sentence that it says the fruit and evidence of a true and living faith. <clears throat> so what is true and living faith? Uh, true faith means a genuine faith. A living faith means a faith that is active, sort of like what you see in James 2, 22, where it says, you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And so James here is not speaking of justification by works. Right? He's not saying salvation by works. Um, as Luther said, faith that justifies is never a dead faith. That is to say that even though you're not saved by works, you do receive a faith that produces good works, right? So, when you're saved, if you're saved, the, one of the benefits from regeneration is that the spirit grants you faith. And that faith, the, the way that we know that that's real saving faith is that it's a living faith. Right? It's a faith that is living, and what that means is a faith that is active, A faith that lives according to the truth of what you're having faith in. And and one of the ways that we can see that it's a faith that is true is uh, we can see that there are things that you do, namely good works. um, There are affections that are given to you in your heart. There are uh, things that are reality to you, uh, and it's fleshed out in your deeds, in your Demeanor, it's, it's fleshed out in how you obey God's word. All those things uh, are signs that the faith that God gave you through regeneration, through new birth, is a real faith. It's a living faith. On the contrary, a dead faith is one that a person may have temporarily, it, it bears no fruit, uh, it, it doesn't produce consistent actions in your life that are consistent with what supposedly you have faith on, what the subject, the object of faith is. You're not bearing any fruit. You live as if you never had faith. Um, and so you can tell the difference between someone who has real saving faith and someone who has dead faith, which is really no faith at all. Uh, Matthew seven seventeen twenty says, So every healthy tree bears good fruit. But the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. So Christianity is not trying to get people to do good things. It's actually more about identifying who are the people who have real saving faith. That's really what it is. It's it's identifying who are the people who have been born again. It's not so much let's get a bunch of people to come to a church and let's try to get them into heaven by helping them do good deeds. No. It's let's bring people in. Let's preach to them the gospel. If the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to regenerate their heart and they're born again, we're going to tell. We'll be able to tell by their fruit. That's what what, uh, Matthew 7 is saying. Look also at uh, 1 John 2, 3 through 6. Can someone read that passage?
1: And by this we know that we have come to, to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him, to
0: walk in the same way in which he Amen. Thank you, brother. Now, this is important to remember. Uh, good works is a part of the Christian life. You know, I, there, was, there was a wave of, I feel like it was a resurgence of, uh, of people finding, about, finding out about it, the, the doctrines of grace and, and Calvinism and things like that. And in this in this wave of people, everyone was excited about the gospel, that they're saved by grace alone. But I feel like a lot of churches have deviated uh, and took that doctrine and forgot that you were also called to live in accordance to that gospel, to live and pursue holiness, to, to examine yourself constantly and walk in, uh, in step with the gospel, walk following Christ, denying yourself, killing sin, all these things that the Bible teaches. Uh, it's almost like that, that's put aside and said, well, we're good, we're saved be, you know, we're saved by grace, so, you know, and, you know for me to pursue holiness is legalism. That, that's, that's not true. We, we see from this passage here that we're called to, to prove our faith through our obedience uh, to God's word. So again, it's important, remember, it's important to remember that good works is a part of the Christian life. Our works will not contribute to our justification, right? It doesn't add anything to the fact that you're saved. Uh, you're saved by Christ's work, but the sign that you're really saved, that you really have faith, is that there is uh, a production of fruit coming from from you. You've been made alive in Christ, and so you will produce fruit. Now, interestingly, good works are not only a sign of living faith, but as the confession says, it's also a sign of thanksgiving or thanks- thankfulness. You know... How I know you're thankful, not that it matters that I know, but you know what I mean, you know how we can tell whether you're thankful is, is when you obey Christ, when you obey his commands. Uh, it says, by them, this is what it says in that paragraph, by them, referring to the good works, believers express their thankfulness. In our gratitude to God, we show forth these good works. And you see this in Psalm 116, verses 12 through 13. Notice the language here. Look at how he begins here. What shall I render? In other words, what shall I give? What shall I offer to the Lord for all his benefits to me? Right? All that Jesus has given me, salvation, eternal life, the kingdom. What shall I render to the Lord for all the benefits? This is an attitude of saying, like, how can I follow God? What can I do to please him? because of all that he's done for me. This is a sign of thanksgiving. I'm so thankful for the gospel. So let me live according to his commands. Another one. Uh, uh, 2 Chronicles 32, uh, 25. It says, But Hezekiah, Hezekiah did not make return according to the benefit done to him, for his heart was proud. Therefore wrath came upon him, and Judah and Jerusalem, you see that relationship there. Make return according to the benefit done to him. Again, we show our thankfulness to God by giving him or giving to him uh, a good return of good works. Now, our good works, in one sense, is produced out of a love for God. Right? We love God, so we we obey. We love to obey because we think that His commandments are wise. But there's also this. uh, There's also a a giving or producing of fruit that is generated in us through Thanksgiving. Um, It's not the only reason to obey, right? I obey only because I'm thankful. You are you. You by by virtue of being a creature, you should obey no matter what. However, part of that obedience um, that pleases God is one that is done. In Thanksgiving, one that has a heart that is thankful, and God is pleased by that. Um, it's a it's a it's a work that is produced out of Thanksgiving because of what God has done for us in the gospel. Moving along, we also see from that same paragraph that good works strengthen our assurance. Because good works are evidence of a genuine and active faith, as a result, good works can strengthen our assurance, almost as a sign that we've been born again. And me, personally, I don't know if you've gone through it, but I've gone through certain doubts in the past of whether or not I was saved. I've gone through my doubts. However, there were times where God would place me in moments where I was able to see real biblical fruit being produced by me. And, and I've seen times where I've felt real affection towards God and towards other people. These are fruits that, that um, reveal to me, that testify to me that the Spirit is at work in me, that the Spirit has sealed me, has set me apart, has regenerated me. Uh, some, sometimes, maybe you, you, you without even noticing, right? And that's usually the best time, when you're not just forcing these good works, but when you do them, and people call, call them to your attention. They say, hey, man, I noticed that you do this. And you didn't even realize you were doing it. But they, they, they tell you, man, you know, praise God, I see this good fruit in your life. And that, that strengthens you, doesn't it? Uh, when someone pulls you aside and tells you, wow, you know, I, I noticed that you're bearing fruit. Um, again, we see this, this idea in Second Peter 1, uh, verses 10 through 11. Can someone read that?
1: Your poor brothers... Be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall, for in this way there will be richly provided for you entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus
0: Christ. Amen. So you see what's uh, underlined there, right? It says, be all the more diligent. Uh, There's this active pursuit to making your calling and election sure. This is speaking about assurance. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. You would never fall from salvation. No, you would never fall in a state of uh, not being assured. Right? He's speaking about assurance here. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Right? If these if these practices are real in your life, what is saying here is that uh, it guarantees or it assures you that you will enter into the eternal kingdom. And so, you know, how much more of an encouragement can we receive? Uh, So we should actively be pursuing to see and examine whether or not fruit is being produced in us. Um, Now, along with that, we also see that good works build up our brothers and sisters as well. Not only ourselves, but our brothers and sisters. Our good works encourage and build our brothers and sisters in Christ, just as our bad works can discourage and tear our brothers down. Right? So when I do bad things, when I don't obey the scripture, when I kind of fall away, it affects everyone. Right? It discourages the body. On the other end, when you do good works, it encourages the body. You know, When I see people do things that I know uh, is very difficult... When I see people living lives that are self-controlled, that are loving and gentle and kind, you know, all the, all, the, uh, all the fruits of the Spirit, there are days where I'm not walking that diligently, and I see this brother doing that, I'm encouraged. It, it makes me believe in faith that I can do the same thing by the power of the Spirit. Desmond? Yeah. none as want to see it yeah yeah
1: yeah
0: yeah 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 and sometimes we don't see how much of the, the increase is uh, when you pull back and you, you consider your life and you see how the Lord has used your brothers and sisters in your life and how they've encouraged you to move and progress in your sanctification, I mean, it's encouraging. Even if it's a little bit, um, it's encouraging. And so, uh, it, you know, walking, walking in holiness and, and doing good works is not just for yourself. You know, I know we, we live in a very individualized culture. But Christianity is very different. It's very, very corporate. And so when you do good works, also think of your brothers and sisters whom you're encouraging in the process. So this is how we build each other up. Um, Many of us have really benefited from the fruit bore by great men from the past who have ran the races before us. They served as a great encouragement. And uh, we see that uh, in Hebrews... 12.1, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So as the writer of Hebrews is is saying this, uh, he's he's recalling the great cloud of witnesses, right? Those in the past. And and, and he, he says... Uh, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance. In other words, we have the testimony of those before us. Let that be an encouragement and let that uh, motivate you to run with endurance. Run the race that is set before you. So the saints that are around you, the saints that came before you, all those uh, serve as an encouragement for us to run the race and to keep going. Um, moving on, we see that good works also adorn the profession of the gospel. It, it, it adorns the profession. You don't know how much, and I'm not trying to cop out, but you don't know how easier, if, if that's a, if that's a word, it how easy it is to get into gospel-related conversations in my workplace when when step one, they see that I'm a Christian, step two, that every day I come in and I treat people with love and care and, 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 uh, and with respect, that, that I'm, already, I'm bearing fruit even in my workplace, uh, that they see that I'm, I'm, I'm the real deal, that these are real convictions, that in tough times I make decisions based on the convictions from the, that, that I gain from the Bible, from God's Word. When they see that in my life, and then I talk about the gospel, they're going to take it a lot more serious. And not to be pragmatic, but honestly, your, your life, your good deeds adorn the message. Not in a way that it enhances the message. It simply shows that there's consistency there, that the message that you're giving to the person, namely the gospel, is true because look at my life. That, you see how it's consistent with your message? It's not a hypocritical situation where you're saying something, but then you go do something else. In this way, it adorns your profession of the gospel. Uh, And and you see that language even in the Bible. Matthew 5.16. It says, In the same way, let your light shine before others. (laughs) Why? So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Titus... Two ten. It says, Showing all good faith, showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. See that adorning language? So we see that good works validate the truth of God and serve, it serves as a pointer to Christ, a pointer to the gospel. And then we, we also see, moving on in the paragraph, we see good works serving another purpose. The confessor says that good works stop the mouths of the opponents. It stops the mouth of the opponents. We see uh, we see Peter speak about this in First Peter two fifteen. Can someone read that? This
1: is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance
0: of foolish people. Yeah, it's good good passage. This is to say that when the when the ignorance of foolish people become the predominant worldview, uh, ass- these people, right, who hold to this- these views, right, that-, that are ignorant, right, they're the ignorance of foolish people, they're essentially pulling away from the source of sound truth, right? We live in a world, uh, it- it's bizarre. I mean, some of the things that people do and say and, and I'm not speaking as someone who's better than anyone else, but it, in comparison to God's truth, you see that some of the things that some of the the beliefs that people hold to are insane. And again, when the ignorance of foolish people become the predominant worldview, they're essentially pulling away from the source of sound truth, which is God Himself. Now, when a Christian does good in this kind of setting, they shed light they're 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 a light shining like a light bulb in the darkness doing good puts to silence the ignorance of foolish people good works serves as a light that often forces people to come back to their senses now how many times have you been in a setting where you know it's worldly people are just living according to the philosophies of the age and again we shouldn't walk in these settings super arrogant like you know I'm a you know I'm a christian and you know, we we shouldn't come in that with that sort of demeanor. But in those settings, if you live consistent with the Word, if you're true, and and you're walking in obedience to Christ, you're walking by the Spirit. You know, some of the deeds that these other people do, sometimes they feel ashamed for doing it, right? They're, they're like, whoa, you know. It all of a sudden they come to their senses, and this is what God's truth does. Uh, and it forces. Uh, the foolery of these people to be silenced. Yes, sir. Yes. And lastly, and most significantly, good works glorify God. And again, Jesus said in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Uh, That's Matthew 5.16. And we're told in Scripture, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Wherever you are, if you're in your workplace, uh, if you're in school, wherever you spend most of your time, wherever you are, whatever you do, whatever you find yourself doing, do it all to the glory of God. What does it mean? Does it mean that your coffee mug always have to have, has to have a passage of Scripture on it? Does it mean that if you're a plumber that you have to write John 3.16 in the toilets? No, that's not what that means. <laughs> Does it mean that you have to drop a track everywhere you go? It's a good idea, but that doesn't mean that. It simply means that everything that you do, you do it as if you're doing it to God. You do everything as if you're doing it to God. Don't, don't do things so that you please your boss directly. right? Like, I, I want to you know, I, I do it because I want to gain points with the boss. At least not directly. You do it first unto God. First unto God. Everything that you do, you do it to glorify God. The confession tells us that believers are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And this is a citation from Ephesians 2.10, which says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So those of us who are saved were made or created in Christ for good works and it is the purpose for which god the ultimate master craftsman has made us to walk in good works specifically in the works that he's commanded okay and then the paragraph ends by saying this it says so that they bear fruit leading to holiness and have the outcome excuse me eternal life and this is a citation from romans 6:22 which says, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. And so I, I think the scripture clears up any false assumptions that, that that paragraph is making a case for a works-based salvation. That's not the case. On the contrary, it's simply stating that if God saves you, you will eventually bear fruit, which leads to holiness, which also guarantees eternal life. And it's important to make that clear because uh, I, don't, I don't want anyone to assume that our confession supports any kind of work-based um, salvation. Uh, the only work that, that has merited salvation is Christ's work, and in him we, we get the benefits of it. Okay, let's move to uh, paragraph three. Let me go back here. Can someone read paragraph three? Uh Thank you. So looking at the first sentence, it says, Their ability to do good works does not arise at all from themselves, but entirely from the Spirit of Christ. I don't know if you remember, but in chapter 9 of the Confession, uh, we spoke about man's inability to do spiritually good because of the fall in the garden. And we also mentioned that the only thing that changes the inability is God converting a sinner to the state of grace. Now, what happens in this transfer, right, when you were a sinner and now you're saved, what happens in this transfer is that God takes a sinner from his natural bondage under sin and by his grace alone enables him to freely, it enables him freely to will and to do that which is spiritually good. In other words, even the Christian's ability to do good works is not at all in themselves, but completely from the Spirit of God. What this means is that when you're born again, you are not just given the ability to do good works now, right? Uh, He doesn't uh, doesn't remake you right there. Uh, That's something eschatological. That's something in the end. God will give you new bodies. Instead, he transfers you from Adam to Christ. He takes you off of Adam and he puts you in Christ. You're unplugged from one tree and now plugged into another tree, the, the true vine, if you will. And it is in this vine in which you're now able to produce any fruit. It is in this vine that you receive the graces needed to produce the, the qualified fruit. Look what, it's, look what Jesus says here in uh, John 15, 4 through 5. Can someone read that?
1: abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the body. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am, you are the Whoever abides in me and hide in him, he is that bears much fruit or part from me.
0: Amen. Thank you, brother. And so uh, you see that uh, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. The, the, uh, the, essential, the essential element, if you will, of, of, of producing fruit is the fact that you are in Christ, that you are uh, connected to the vine. And so it's, it, it's because of that that you're able to produce fruit. Yeah, Pete. That's right. If service is a giving, you know, all within that. Mm-hmm. You're doing good
1: works, and God empowers us yes. to do so. Every Christian has to be able to do good works.
0: That's right. Yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's an essential element of what it means to be Christian. And God. Yeah. Amen. Now, moving along, the paragraph then says to enable them to do good works, they need, in addition to the graces that they have already received, in actual influence of the same Holy Spirit to work in them to will and to do His good pleasure. Now, first of all, what are the graces that we've already received that that sentence is talking about? Number one, it's regeneration, but also, but God also gives us uh, faith, repentance, justification, uh, adoption, sanctification. These are all gifts from the Spirit, but then there's also, like Pete was saying, uh, gifts of the Spirit, which He distributes as He wills to His people. And these are the graces that they have received that the confession is talking about there. Uh, Notice, though, that it goes on and it says that on top of that, on top of those gifts, we need the Holy Spirit to work in us to will and to do His good pleasure. Right? What does that mean? Well, because of our remaining corruption, uh, we, we not only need the graces that he has given to us, the ones that I just named, but we need the Holy Spirit to cause us to will to do God's good pleasure and cause us to do his, his good pleasure, to do these deeds. So, uh, in other words, apparently, because of our corruption, it's not enough that he gives us these gifts. On top of that, he has to also cause us to will to do these things. You see this in Philippians 2.13 where it says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And I think there's a lot of good practical things that we can gain from this. Uh, A lot of us may be saved, but it seems as if God needs to also save us from our weakness to know and to work for his good pleasure. Yet it's comforting to know that God not only has given us the grace of salvation, but also the grace that we get from the Holy Spirit working in our hearts to will and to work. Um, for some, this may seem very mysterious on how God is also at work in his people to the level of even helping us desire him and to serve him. But this is grace. This is a grace that God gives us. Now, the confession is also aware of the danger of, let it, of, of those people who want to just let themselves go. I remember when uh when I came back from my honeymoon and uh I was a little bit more heavier because we went to Cancun and it was uh it was a resort where it's all you can eat and you know So anyway, my ring was tight pe- pe- like my coworkers would come and say, "Can I try to take your ring off of your finger?" and I knew that they were hinting that I came back a little more heavier. Um I was going somewhere with that. I was going somewhere with that. I I, my, I think my mind started thinking about oh vacation. I need one. Uh, oh yeah, here it is. Okay. And so um, I, I remember this is something that everyone used to tell me. They they would say don't let yourself go. Don't let go. You know. In other words. Don't just now that you're married, don't just relax. You're going to you're going to just you're going to get fat and you're going oh, kind to of all something. I haven't recovered. I'm still working on it. But 6 7 years later, uh, uh but the confession is aware of the danger of people who let themselves go, if you know, in a sense. Let themselves go spiritually. Um this is something that you do voluntarily, right? In a sense, we're always let go, right? God is always in control. There's never a point where we we're grabbing on, technically. But there is a willful letting go. There's one that you do in your heart, which is a letting go that you decide to do in your heart, which is, I'm just going to let go and let God, right? And the, the, the reformers knew the danger of that because this, it wasn't a question of God's sovereignty. If anything, the reformers knew that the, the divines of the confession were very well educated in the doctrines of grace and in the doctrine of uh, election. So it's not that they had an issue with the with the will of God. They just had an w- issue with the will of man.
1: Okay. I think this is he says you have increased more than starving.
0: Thank you, brother. Yes. I'm gonna lose my thought. It's aware of the danger of letting yourself go to the point where you do not actively pursue a life of good works and faith, but you end up falling back in negligence, right? People who let go, they, they, they begin to neglect um, attending the means of grace, reading their Bible, because they think, well, God is going to give me that desire anyway. So when it comes, it comes. God is in control. In a sense, the theology is right, but the, the, uh, the, the way to apply it is wrong. Uh, the paragraph speaks of this. It says, yet this is no reason for them to grow negligent as if they were not required to perform any duty without a special motion of the Spirit. Instead, they should be diligent to stir up the grace of God that is in them. They should be diligent to stir the grace of God that is in them. What does it mean to stir up the grace of God that is in you? It means that you attend the means of grace. You are to attend the preaching and the teaching of God's Word. You are to receive the ordinance of the church. And you have to be diligent in prayer. These are explicitly prescribed in scripture. This means that these things, when you attend these things, those things will stir up the grace that's in you. This also means that although God is doing the work in you, you're you're not allowed to will against that. And by letting yourself go is actively willing against that, right? Even though your will doesn't, cannot thwart God's hand it is a command you ought to seek after these things this also means that although God is doing the work in you you're called to actively flesh that reality out you are to perform that Uh, and we see this when Paul told the Philippian church in Philippians 2 12 Uh, can someone read that by the way the first one
1: Loved as you have always obeyed. so now not only in my presence but much more in my absence work out your own salvation with fear.
0: Yeah. So so Paul was well aware of the sovereignty of God, but he also commanded the church to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. And then Hebrews 6:11 through 12 says and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And this is how we, is how we are to stir up the grace of God within us. We actively carry out our duty while depending on the spirit to enable us to do that. Uh, I'm going to try to get through four, five, six, seven. Uh, we'll see. Uh, let, let, let's do this, just for the sake of time, let's go through each one I'll just quickly summarize each one um, but what I, would, what I would suggest also is uh, whenever one of our classes don't get to cover uh, remaining paragraphs, just go home, look at it, see how it compares to everything else that we've spoken about today, study it, uh, it's, it's going to bless you but I'm going to briefly just cover each one. Uh, number four says, those who attain the greatest heights of obedience possible in this life are far from being able to merit reward by going beyond duty or to do more than God requires. Instead, they fall short of, of much that is their duty to do. Uh, in summary, uh, this is basically saying that even hypothetically, if someone were to be perfectly obedient, they still don't qualify uh, for eternal life in that way. Uh, Because since they've inherited the corruption of Adam, every good deed that they do, every act of obedience that they do is tainted and it's mixed with corruption. And so in the final analysis, when God examines the good works of that person, it still falls short of the glory of God. Okay? Uh, By the way, the Roman Catholic Church taught and still teaches that the works of supererogation, which is additional works that are done by saints that supersede what was expected to them. It's like extra credit work. Those saints that did extra credit work, uh, what, what what they believe is that they deposit that extra credit in this account. And so they have all this extra credit. <laughs> and so when someone sins, um, they can use some of that to, to cover that sin so that they don't have to do penance for it. It's just its all this extra good deeds in this pot. I you, that aspect of the
1: controversy of
0: yes, in the Reformation, right? With Luther, yeah. Yes. Praise God for the Reformation. The Reformation rejected that. And they rejected it not because they felt like it, but because Luke 17.10 says this. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants, and we have only done what is our duty. What this means is that any good works that you're doing, don't puff yourself up. You're supposed to do that by by nature, and you still struggle with it. We've only done what is our duty, and Jesus corrects that sort of false idea. Um, Let's see. Let's look at paragraph five. It says, we cannot, even by our best work, merit pardon of sin or eternal life, God's hand due to the huge disproportion between our works and the glory to come and the infinite distance between us and God. By these works, we can neither benefit God nor satisfy him for the debt of our former sins. When we have done all we can, we have only done our duty and our unprofitable servants. A lot of that is, is kind of like, kind of what we just covered. And it goes on It says, since our good works are good, they must proceed from the spirit. And since they are performed by us, they are defiled and mixed with so much weakness and imperfection that they cannot withstand the severity of God's punishment. So again, this just sort of reiterates or breaks down the reality that every good deed that we do is still mixed in with, uh, with impurity. Uh, and again, it, 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 it doesn't count as, as merit for us. Uh, Romans 3.20 Tells us for by the works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Uh, and I like uh, Isaiah where it says we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Some versions say like a filthy rag. So again, you're justified only by the work of Christ. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> Yeah. Prayer wow. Which, which, which just goes to so... Yeah. Yeah, it goes to so our need for, for Christ, you know, only in every way. Paragraph 6 says, Nevertheless, believers are accepted through Christ, and thus their good works are also accepted in him. This acceptance does not mean our good works are completely blameless or irreproachable in God's sight. Instead, God views them in his Son, and so he is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere even though it is accompanied by many weaknesses and imperfections. Uh, I think this is where it, it's, it gives sort of a, more of an encouraging side, uh, considering that the previous passage spoke of the weakness and imperfections of our good works. We see that in this paragraph, uh, it helps us to avoid the extreme of assuming that good works are not acceptable at all. We see right from the first sentence, it says, Nevertheless, believers are accepted through Christ, And thus their good works are also accepted in him. And so I'll say this just to kind of summarize. As a Christian in Christ, your good works count, but not for your justification. Right? God accepts them uh, in this way. See in 1 Peter 2, 5, it says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to, look what it says there, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so, uh, these are acceptable sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. However, they're accepted only because God is taking them as if Jesus himself were offering it to him. So, our good works are accepted to God but only for the mere fact that we're united in Christ and God is receiving them as if he's receiving these gifts to Christ. This is why we get uh, rewards in heaven because technically, uh, it's God, I mean, it's Jesus Christ who, or who uh, was able to uh, receive these good works for all the good works that are produced in us. And finally, uh, number seven says, works done by unregenerate people may in, in themselves be commanded by God and useful to themselves and others. Yet they do not come from a heart purified by faith and are not done in a right manner according to the word of God nor with a right goal, the glory of God. Therefore, they are sinful and cannot please God. They cannot qualify anyone to receive grace from God. And yet their neglect is even more sinful and displeasing to God. Uh, In summary, works done by unbelievers are not considered good works. Even though they they may be works that are in line with what God has commanded, they're not good because they're not done in faith, in Christ. Sometimes though, God rewards people who, does, who, who do good things in accordance to his scripture, even though it's not done by faith. And he does, ho- he does so only to prove that what he commands is good. But he doesn't reward them for the mere fact that, uh, he doesn't reward them because they're good. He rewards them because the deed is good. You do you think that um, people who are not saved can
1: act, uh, let's say, in a loving way or benevolent way towards others with a selfless love, that,
0: that the type of love that Christ gave to us? Yeah, uh, definitely not. Um, and here's the reason why. The, the love that Christ gave towards us, it may resemble it. I'll say that. It may resemble. It. A self-sacrificial love is, in some sense, in some way, a picture of the gospel. So we can't deny that the deed in and of itself doesn't resemble sacrifice. The problem is that the gospel, or in the work of Christ, there are so many other nuances that needs to be considered, right? Number one, Christ did that act in love for us, but primarily in love for God. And so when a person out there does some sort of sacrificial deed, they're not doing it in that same love. And so therefore, that that act cannot be equated. It can't be considered to be the same in any sense. Maybe as it resembles, the deed may resemble it, but it's not counted as a good work according to God. We could probably get more into it. Um, yeah, go ahead, Peter.
1: Uh, I was going to just read a, a verse real quick, but it kind of leads into that a little bit, uh, what you just said. When, when the confession gets to this chapter, it's already kind of built up all these uh, like steps to get here.
0: Mm-hmm. So we should take this chapter in light of everything that's already kind of been broken down. Yes. Um, all of
1: this chapter should be considered in light of passages like Ezekiel 36. Mm-hmm. Um, and in there, um, chapter or 36, starting at 26, which is a new covenant promise, um, God says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I will put uh, with the, and a new spirit, I will put with you and will remove the heart of stone from the, from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And twenty seven, he says, and I will put my spirit within you mm. and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my. rules. Mm. So all of that, everything that you spoke about today, is a, is, is a, a gospel accomplishment by Christ himself. That's right. He gives. Those um, abilities, slash, requirements Mm -hmm. to his new covenant community. That's right. To be able to uphold them because he gives them the ability to do so in himself.
0: That's right. That's why
1: a love that's outside of Christ can't reflect Christ's love. That's right. They don't have the spirit, the new spirit of the heart that he gives his new covenant people.
0: Yeah, amen. Amen. Very good. I want to answer your question. We're just out of time, but uh, I'd be willing to stick around. And also, I want to encourage, in fact, I forgot to put the box back there. We have a box where we, uh, thanks, brother, where we we want you guys to write your questions down because we're actually going to have a time allotted for Q&A. And a lot of what we covered here is very complicated. Even the previous chapters are complicated. So we want to give you that opportunity, but also uh, a, a time slot that, that helps us to answer correctly and answer uh, in the best way we can. So hold your questions. Let me go ahead and pray, and then uh, I'll stick around if you guys have any comments or questions. Our Father, we thank you uh, that in your covenant we've received these blessings, the Lord, as Pedro said. Uh, we thank you that uh, in this covenant we have regenerated hearts, and prior to faith, our works were an abomination to you. They were done with wrong intentions. They were, run, they were done apart from the Spirit, Yet now you receive our weak and imperfect gifts. And this is only possible in Christ. And we thank you for this new covenant. We praise the Spirit in applying these rich benefits that we do not deserve. And so, Father, may we always do the works knowing that we are undeserved sinners and are only doing what is our duty. We thank you and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thanks, guys.